I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. The story we're going to study today was a real story. It took place 1,400 years before Christ. But it's not just a story that took place then. It's a story that has to be repeated in our own experience. And we will see that as we learn what the story is about. There was a man named Moses who was, as a baby, adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. They lived in Egypt, obviously. And he was raised in all the ways of the Egyptians. Yet he knew he was Hebrew. One day, when he was 40 years old, he was wandering out among the Hebrews, checking on his kin, so to speak. And uh, he noticed that an Egyptian was abusing a Hebrew. And Moses looked both ways, saw no one was looking. He grabbed the Egyptian and he killed him. Pharaoh heard about it and sentenced him to death. So he fled for his life to the land of Midian, which we know today as the Sinai Peninsula. While there, he met a man named Jethro and Jethro's daughters. He married one of Jethro's daughters. Her name is Zipporah. And Moses became a shepherd. He took care of the livestock of Jethro. He did that for 40 years and then the Bible says he was on the back side of the desert, which is the west side of the desert. He was there and he saw a phenomena. A bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. He approached the bush and God spoke to him from the flame. And God instructed Moses that he wanted Moses to go back to Egypt and to deliver the Hebrew people from their slavery, to deliver them from bondage, to give them freedom, and to lead them to the promised land. Now Moses said, well, how will they know that you've actually spoken to me? What, what, shall I, what is your name? What shall I tell them you've told me? And so they work through this dialogue together. Moses was still not quite satisfied, so he had some more questions. So God gave him two signs to deal with, and we've studied those two signs. We'll refer to them today because we have to understand them to understand the third sign. The actual verse we will study today is verse 9 of chapter 4, but to understand it, we will read the verses preceding it. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 1. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. So the Lord said to him, What is in your hand? He said, A rod. And God said, Cast it to the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom, and when he took it out, his hand was leprous like snow. And God said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. 
and behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. Those first two signs were messages. They were signs, but there was a message involved in the sign. And God says, the rod is first, the leper's hand is second, and as we studied them, we learned that the rod was overcoming the presence of the power of evil. The leper's hand was overcoming the presence of the power of sinfulness. God, being God, has identified what is evil. And he is demonstrating he is more powerful than evil. And God, being God, has identified sinfulness in man's heart. And God, being God, is able to deal with that. He is able to heal and cleanse the corrupted human heart. Those are the first two signs. Now let's go to the third sign, verse 9. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land. And the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. The first thing we note when we read this verse is that God never wanted the third sign to be shown to them. Notice how it's read here. It shall be if they do not believe these two signs. If they do not believe the signs or the message of the signs, then do this. God wanted those two signs. He wanted those two messages to be accepted and to be believed. If they were not, then do number three. And apparently, on some level, the Hebrews accepted the first two signs because Moses does not do number three with them. But what is number three all about? Well, let's look at it. If we look in the Bible where water is turned into blood, we will find a consistent theme, a consistent pattern. Please go to Exodus chapter 7. Exodus 7, beginning with verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. Moses was to confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is hardened. That means he is unbelieving. He is not accepting what God is trying to teach him. And in that context, the blood or the water of the Nile was turned to blood. Now go to Revelation chapter 16. This is the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 16. We begin with verse 1. It says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. 
bowls filled with the wrath of God. These are known as the seven last plagues. None of these have happened yet. They're all future. But notice what they are. So the first went and poured out his bowl upon the earth, and a foul and loathsome sore came upon the men who had the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Then the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it became blood as of a dead man, and every living creature in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. Note this, water being turned into blood is a sign of judgment from God. Moses did not have to show that third sign to the Israelites because on some level they accepted the first two signs. So let's rehearse a little bit. God wanted them to believe that there is evil. God wanted them to understand that He is holy, He is moral, He is good, and He is right. He wanted them to understand that He determines what is evil, that He determines what is good, and He determines what is bad. He also wanted them to embrace the idea of their sinfulness, that man is sinful, and God holy, moral, good, and right, yet man has a way to be with God. God will work a miracle to change the sinfulness of the man's heart. If someone in this story was going to be a follower of God, they would have to let God determine what is evil and what is good. And they would have to recognize their need of being saved from their sinfulness. And if so, they could embrace God's miracle of salvation. If they did not believe both signs, doesn't say one or the other, both signs, then the third sign would be given. That's a sign of judgment. Now this whole concept of good and evil begins early in the scriptures. If you'll turn back to Genesis chapter 3, you have the story of Adam and Eve where they sin. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they're escorted from the garden. We read about it in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. It goes on to say, God sent him out of the garden and he protected it the entrance back into the garden with, an, with angels with flaming swords. They were not allowed access to the tree of life because man now thought he could determine what is good and what is evil. And that's what it means. They think they know good and evil. That simply means that due to the sinfulness that man embraced through disobedience to God, man thought he could establish his own rules. Man could determine what was right. Man could determine what was wrong. Man could determine what was good. Man could determine what was evil. And God said we cannot allow man to live eternally with that heart. So man was escorted out of the garden and God established a plan to get him back into the garden. That would be the plan of redemption. So we find here that two things had to be embraced by the Hebrews in order for them to be delivered. If they rejected one or both, 
what they would face would be judgment. Now, it's pretty clear that that's what the story is about. There are consequences for not believing God. The consequences are judgment. And it's our purpose when we study the Bible to understand things in their context, then we can apply it to our day as well. So I have a question for you. Is it possible that in our day, there may be issues with morality? That in our day, there may be issues with people accepting God's definition of what is good and what is evil? Is it possible that the very questions or signs that God raised for the people back then, he has raised for us, and that we must accept God's morality and God's concept of what our heart is like, or we face judgment. Is that possible? Yes, it is. In fact, it is true. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Isaiah is a prophet that preaches in Jerusalem about 650 years before Jesus. They had a problem in that day. And notice what their problem was. In verse 20 it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 2,600 years ago, people who were supposed to be serving God had turned so far away from serving God that they were calling evil good. And they were calling good evil. They were calling bitter sweet. They were calling sweet bitter. And they were calling darkness light and light darkness. Isn't it interesting? 2,600 years later, we find similar things going on in our culture and in the society in which we live. Years ago, the standards of morality, which were considered good, have long gone, been swept away. Lifestyles and choices and all manner of things have come in. And if you still hold to what the Bible says, you are considered evil because of your intolerance or your unwillingness to be accepting of others. Let's look at this for a moment. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. This is a very important message I have for you today. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 13 says this, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance in the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. So to walk with God, to fear God, is to hate evil. To hate evil would require us to acknowledge what God considers to be evil. Look at Psalm 34. Psalm 34, verse 11. This is the writings of David in this psalm. David was the second king of Israel. Verse 11 Come, you children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Who is the man who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? 
Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking guile. Evil can be things that are said. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Evil can be things that people do. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. What is a working definition of evil? That which is useless, bad, destructive, immoral, whether ideas or actions that are opposed to what God declares as fair, advisable, good, and useful. Evil is in juxtaposition with good. Now, note this. There are levels that we're going to look at. Social issues. There are morality and ethics that are being debated socially, culturally, nationally, internationally. Morality and ethics are being debated continuously in our world today. Sides have been taken, lines have been drawn, and there is great pressure for each of us to fall in line with what man thinks is right. Christians are being marginalized because they want to follow what God says is moral, what God says is proper ethics. The world is not buying that and there's tremendous pressure socially to get on a side that would be contrary to what God teaches. And that's one level. But this is the most important one. It's the personal level, the personal issues. Each one of us struggles with this. Morality and ethics are debated within our own minds regarding the temptations that avail themselves. Temptations would be wonderful if they weren't tempting. But they are. It's stuff we'd really like to do or experience. And here they come. And in our mind, we have a struggle with that. Okay, there is a person here and they're willing and uh, you just fill in the blanks there. And, uh, but God says that wouldn't be right. So we have a tension within us about a morality and ethics and it's debated within our minds. It, it, temptation comes, it looks appealing and initially we think, oh no, that's not right, but boy, is it available. Hmm. Maybe, maybe it doesn't apply in this situation. God understands where I'm at and uh, rationalization comes in and within us there is great pressure to overlook the clear statements of Scripture. Note this, our decisions determine whether we believe God or not. It's our decisions that determine that. If we knowingly disregard his clear teachings regarding good and evil, there will be consequences, some in this life, but certainly in the judgment to come. That's one side of the equation. The morality of God. Now what I'm gonna say right now uh, is very 
shocking in some ways. There are many people that are in church who have embraced the morality of God. They buy into it, they accept it, and they want to keep it, and they want to embrace it, and they endeavor in their lives to follow it and to apply it to their lives. But Moses was told there are two things. One is the morality of God. The other is the understanding of the sinfulness of the human heart. And it's very possible that someone could be a highly moral person, careful and particular in every aspect of their life to align it with what they believe God wants and yet not embrace the second part. And by not embracing the second part, the first part means nothing. And so the only thing that can be expected are consequences which are not good. And so we're moving into an area right now and I just want to plead to everybody, especially anybody that's been in church for any length of time at all, anybody that's made decisions for morality for God, anybody that's sought to order their life in a way that they believe God wants it to be ordered, if you are that person, I want you to pay very careful attention to what comes next. God said or taught in the second sign the sinfulness of man. The heart of man is leprous. It is sinful. But God can heal that. But he cannot heal it unless we accept the reality that we have this sinfulness. Please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. The church at Rome was a unique church. It was not started by any of the apostles. It was started by lay people. And it was membered, the membership were two distinct groups. You had Gentiles and you had Jews. And they were worshiping together. They each had a different background. They came from life from a different perspective. The Jews were very religious. Many of the Gentiles, eh, they were religious, but they had a multitude of gods and it was different. They came together. And part of this book, Paul is talking to the Gentiles. Part of this book, Paul is talking to the Jews. And part of this book, he is talking to both of them. I'm going to read a part to you where he's talking to both of them, but he sets it up this way. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then are we better than they? Well, who's the we and who's the they? Paul is Jewish and he's saying, are we better than the Gentiles? They didn't know the way of God. They didn't know the morality of God. They didn't have the law of God. They didn't have the proper diet. They didn't have the proper dress. They didn't have the proper recreation. They didn't have any of that. We had it, he says, and we followed it. And we were careful with it. Are we better than them? What does he say? Not at all. Why? 
Well, look on. Look, it goes, for we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Here's why. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of ass is under their lips. <clears throat> whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is describing Gentile and Jew. That's the human heart. You may think that doesn't apply to you. Is there anybody here? Just give me your name. I'll make up one. I'll call you Ed. There is none righteous but Ed. There is none who understands but Ed. You get it? We're all in this page. It's describing our sinful heart. But watch what it says in verse 20. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul is saying here, no behavior helps you get to heaven. None. Behavior's good. Yeah, it's great. Have your morality, the morality of God. You're a better neighbor, and we're happy for that. Thank you that you don't steal from us. We're, we appreciate all that. But as far as going to heaven, you're not. Unless you deal with the sinfulness of the heart. We read in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. In other words, the word of God testifies righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. How? Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. We must embrace both the messages that God gave to Moses. Look at verse 28. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Now it's so easy as human beings to get out of balance. We have religious people who believe that they're good because they're good. And they don't deal with the sinfulness of their heart. They don't really understand the need of a savior. And really all they are is people with a souped up conscience who are going to hell. That's it. Then you have another group of people and they say, oh, it's grace and it is grace. Salvation is a gift. It is a gift. We can't save ourselves. We need a savior. But anybody who's had Christ come and dwell in their heart is going to ask a question. And that question is simply, what does God want from me now? And that's where God's morality comes in. You must have both. You've got to have Jesus Christ as your Savior, and that is demonstrated to God by embracing His morality. That's how it works. I seek God's morality not to be saved. I seek God's morality because I am saved. If I'm seeking God's morality because it's God's morality and I'm not saved, nothing. 
But if Christ is in my heart, it will be demonstrated that he's in my heart by my seeking God's morality and embracing that. So Moses was told to show God's power over evil and to show God's power to deal with the sinfulness of the human heart. If the people didn't believe that, the next sign was judgment. There are consequences when people don't believe God. The same message applies to us today. Before we are delivered from bondage, before we begin the journey to the promised land, there are two things we have to embrace. Our sinfulness and need of a savior and God's morality. So how do we do that? Well, it's a simple matter of asking Jesus to come into the heart. Many people seek to clean up their lives so they can go to God, forget it, you can't. You'll never be clean enough to go to God. You go to God just as you are. We're sinful, broken human beings who have a God in heaven who loved you so much he sent his only begotten son to save us. He knows our condition. All we have to do is admit it. Come to him. Embrace him. Let him change our heart. And I'm wondering today if there's anyone here who would like to say, I want God to deal with my sinfulness and I want God to establish his morality in my heart. If you want to say that, I invite you to stand right where you're at. Father in heaven, we thank you that you can heal our sinful heart. We thank you, Lord, that you can establish power over evil within us. We embrace them both, Lord. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.